Welcome to Dead and Roasted. What can I get you? You know, I might have a rough job from time to time, serving mediocre coffee and shooing away the occasional werewolf hobos from the side of the store here at Dead and Roasted. But I will tell you, I'm glad I'm not in the army. Grueling training, deadly shootouts, coming back with PTSD, not to mention the mutants. However, while I'm on my break today, I do have a few new stories for you. One about the horrors of war, one about mutants on a military base, and one about those that come back in the dark corners of a hospital. Grab your double espresso and strap in. These stories will scare you, make you laugh, or even depress you at times. After all, these are tales from the break room. Where's that light coming from? From Jason R. After completing boot camp in the summer of 1991, I was sent to Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland for my advanced individual training. Whereas boot camp teaches you how to be a soldier, AIT teaches you the job you'll be doing in the army. My particular MOS was 45K10, a tank turret repairer. To be honest, I don't remember how long I was at Aberdeen. Cut me some slack. It's been 30 years. But there is one thing I remember with crystal clarity, and it had nothing to do with fixing tanks. As a private, you live a life of crap. Flinging dirt, raising flags, and pointless guard assignments were all just parts of life. There was one particular sight that caused some guys to be uneasy. All these bravely macho morons thought something bad was out there. I'd pulled duty there before and thought they were full of crap. There was a bunch of surplus junk strewn out all about Hell's Half Acre. Off to the right of the main building was a patch of woodland where, well, I'll get back to that in a minute. Aberdeen is a nasty place and I don't mean it's unkempt. Every sort of toxic substance one can imagine has been or is currently stored there. Toxic gases, nerve agents, hell, even the M1A1 Abrams used a particularly nasty hydraulic fluid. Now that might not sound so bad, but FRH, as it's called, can cause everything from blindness to sterility to, in my case, epilepsy. Yes, I'm a disabled vet, and my disability was probably caused by me being frequently drenched in FRH. I say probably because Aberdeen Proving Ground was also home to some radiological materials as well. God only knows what caused me to get as messed up as I am. Grand mal seizures are buckets of fun, let me tell ya. Anyway, now that I've completed my pity parade, I'll tell you about something else that also got messed up at Aberdeen. The deer. Guys had told me about eight-legged frogs and all kinds of other weird crap out there. I'd never seen anything, but to be fair, Aberdeen Proving Ground is 70k plus acres. A lot of stuff can be hiding out there. There were two other guys with me, another private named Richie. He was a Vanilla Ice wannabe. Again, we're talking about the 90s. He thought he was a lot hipper than everyone else. He was alright, I guess. Neither one of us wanted to be there, and we spent the first hour or so complaining about how damned cold it was. What are we supposed to be protecting out here? How the hell should I know? 
What am I, our squad leader or class? Shut up, you two. I think I heard something. This came from Specialist Third Guy. I don't remember his name, so we'll keep it as Third Guy. I think Third Guy was going through AIT again, as he was changing his MOS. I can't recall exactly. Anyway, he was the really annoying part of the evening. Richie and I were both young and stupid. This guy was just stupid. Out of nowhere, he ran off chasing someone he thought he saw. Richie and I figured he was trying to scare us. Rather than follow him, we just sat there and waited for our relief to show up. Safety is everything in the army, I write as I laugh myself hoarse. And naturally, the only light we had available came from a nearby street lamp. We couldn't see Jack, and both of us were hoping the boredom would be broken by the sound of third guy screaming because he'd fallen and broken his ankle. No such luck. Within a few minutes, he came back and said he was sure he saw something, but it didn't look like a person. He was acting kind of strange. He wasn't treating us like newbies anymore. It's a pretty sad state of affairs when you realize something might be wrong by someone not being a pain. Did you guys see anything weird? Maybe a Hummer came by and shined its lights over there. Richie wasn't having it. Man, we haven't seen crap. Realizing we were done with his nonsense, he downshifted a bit. Has our relief arrived? It was my turn to be annoyed. Dude, if our relief arrived, we would have let you F around out there and gone back to the barracks. Then, all three of us heard a twig snap. But he was the only one to react. There was all manner of oil drums that had been used to contain something other than oil. Water buffaloes, etc. scattered everywhere. Some of the stuff wasn't painted OD green, some of it was white. Having driven past the place on a number of occasions, we knew what was out past the tree line. We couldn't see any of the junk that was painted white because it was too dark. But we all could see something. This isn't part of the story where I claimed that everything fell silent. We could very well hear crickets and other things making noise. There was another snap, which let us know where to look. When we looked, it was a deer. We could see it because, well, this deer, I kid you not, was glowing. I can say this because the light it was giving off lit up the branches above it, as well as a piece of equipment in front of it. What in the world? I muttered. Now, before anyone says I saw a wendigo, keep in mind the depictions of a wendigo with horns come from movies. So no, this wasn't a wendigo, it was just a deer, doing normal deer things. You know, like glowing in the dark. We just sat there, watching this thing walk quietly through the trees, dipping its head every now and then to eat grass, or perhaps uranium. I told you. You didn't tell us anything, Richie said, not taking his eyes off the beast. Realizing he hadn't, third guy shut up. Whenever it got close enough for us to get a better look at it, we noticed it wasn't right. I don't quite know how to explain it. I mean, a deer's eyes reflect light whenever a light hits them, but this thing's eyes never stopped shining, and its fur was all clumpy. It had patches of fur that were long near its shoulders and rump, and it didn't seem at all to be afraid of us. This thing wandered in and out of the woods for like ten minutes. 
Then our relief finally decided it was a good time to make an appearance. Then we realized something else. It wasn't alone. Back off in the trees were several normal deer who got spooked and darted off when they heard the rumble of the Hummer's engine. But old Whitey didn't seem to be scared. It left, but it did so at its own pace. Richie, ever the blabbermouth, grabbed one of the guys coming on shift and pointed at it. I know what you're thinking, that this is the part where it just disappeared. No. In fact, all of us saw old Whitey out there. One or two of the normal deer and another weird deer in the back. Like I said, you couldn't see much back in those woods. But the Hummer's lights revealed that there was another one back a bit further. It wasn't glowing. It was just white. My guess, or hope, is that it was albino. When I was discharged six years later, the docs tried to convince me the army hadn't caused my epilepsy. I promptly told them I'd be getting a second opinion from a civilian doctor and a lawyer. Their tone changed, but they downplayed it as much as possible. Now, this was a young doctor, and I doubted she'd seen much of anything outside of a troop medical clinic. At one point, she got huffy and made a comment that I was exaggerating my condition. I had to stop myself from paraphrasing Winston Zettimore's line from Ghostbusters. Lady, I've seen shit that'll turn you white. This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the U.S., each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York, deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry, while Steve separately researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Listening to stories of disturbing criminals and mysterious encounters is fun, but why not become a part of the story? You should play June's Journey. In the Roaring Twenties, a woman is murdered, and her sister, June Parker, must find out who the killer is. Become a detective and search for clues through challenging yet fun hidden item games. Level after level, unlock new scenes and intrigue into some very scandalous family secrets, uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. 
June's journey is a lot of fun, with gameplay that's easy to pick up, but challenging enough to keep you playing. Your hard work is rewarded with an intriguing murder mystery, brought to life by beautiful 1920s scenery and atmospheric music. In between puzzles and story scenes, you can even decorate your island how you see fit, with gardens, structures, and more. You can even play with or against other players by joining a detective club, where you can also get a chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I've enjoyed playing June's Journey, especially on my porch in the morning. It's nice to get some nice warm sun and fresh air while solving this murderous case. I've always been a fan of point-and-click style games anyways, and my aging brain appreciates the light bulb feature that helps me find the trickiest items in a given scene, helping me to keep my combo alive. June's Journey is the perfect game for story, relaxation, or a good challenge. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Wheelchair Collector from Alex When I was in high school, my mom worked at a hospital. And every summer until I went to college, she signed me up for their volunteer program. For those of you who may not know, volunteering is kind of like having a job and they don't pay you. They do, however, pay you with meal vouchers and invaluable experience that you can then put on all your future college and job applications. Putting the sarcasm aside, volunteering did help me when I started to apply for real jobs. Having some customer service experience and time management skills beat out someone with no experience most of the time. And I'll always be grateful to the very nice women in the patient registration department that I worked with. I'll never know how they all managed to stay so calm when dealing with so many people every day, day after day, and week after week. I think it's fair to say that patient registration is like the mouth of hell. Everyone entering the hospital for any sort of procedure... MRIs, colonoscopies, or stress tests has to be processed through the registration department. And even back then, years before the pandemic, it was sometimes a crowded and miserably long wait. That's why volunteers were so important, to help keep the line moving. We were tasked with photocopying insurance cards, giving patients forms to read or fill out while they waited, and escorting people to where their appointments were. Even though it wasn't a big hospital, it had a confusing layout. There were two separate towers and five sets of elevators that were very hard to describe to people without discombobulating them. Yes, go straight ahead through the glass doors and then on your right there are four elevators that will take you to the seventh floor where imaging is the third floor on the left side. Or, oh no, don't take the elevators next to the cafeteria, they only go to our floor, the main floor, and then to the parking lot and basement. Yeah, no, that's all way too confusing for most people, just trying to make it to their appointment on time. For the many elderly that frequented our hospital, it was almost cruel to give them a lot of directions they could barely hear, then send them on their way. If there was more than one of us volunteers, it was easy to take turns walking with patients to their destinations. But most of the time, there was only one of us there. So when it was really busy, there was just a relentless back-and-forth cycle you had to run between the elevators and doctor's offices. What made the busy days especially difficult was when there was more than one patient that required the use of a wheelchair. I'm not blaming the patients. I'm merely commenting on the limited number of wheelchairs we had available. Our department only had three permanently assigned to us, 
And just like shopping carts in a grocery store, most people didn't return them right away, or where they were supposed to. So when a patient needed one and we didn't have any around, it always fell to the volunteers to quickly jog, never run, around the hospital to go wheelchair hunting. Being a consistent volunteer, I quickly learned that the valet and ER were usually great spots to find one in a hurry. But when they turned up empty, the only other place to check was in the parking garage. If patient registration was the mouth of hell, then the parking garage was definitely the bowels. It wasn't just one big thing that was off-putting about the parking garage, but a collection of many small things that, over time, made you feel completely unwelcome in the place. While they cleaned the floors every few months, the maintenance crew never seemed to get around to dusting the exposed pipes which veined the concrete ceilings, or change the flickering fluorescent lights, until the doctors who were driving around in their nice cars started complaining. Sometimes I think the creepy factor was enhanced because it was an underground parking lot. With no natural lighting and a serpentine design, there was an endless sense to the space. Like if you didn't know where the elevators were, you could aimlessly wander down there forever, not knowing if it was night or day. The air was always a little too stagnant as well. Not disgusting or dirty, but just heavy with the fumes of car exhaust, dusty old equipment, and stale unwashed linens. On lucky days, I'd be able to find one or two wheelchairs right in front of the elevator doors, and on bad days, I'd have to walk past the storage staging area that set towards the back of the garage. Since it was a storage area, the light in there was never on, but you could see empty hospital beds crowded together waiting to be fixed. I'm not sure if it's common for hospital beds to require maintenance that often, but that area always seemed to have three or more beds, just waiting quietly in the dark. I absolutely hated walking past that storage area. Even though I knew better, I always felt as if there were people lying in those beds, and something bad would happen to me if I looked at them directly. So whenever I had to cross the path, I looked at the ground or made it a game to look at the license plates of cars that were parked nearby. But it happened one day. One morning, an elderly woman, who probably shouldn't have been driving, accelerated instead of breaking into her parking space. The front of her car was damaged, but the woman, besides being a nervous wreck, was okay. I remember when she was wheeled into the lobby and rushed through patient registration, her hands were still shaking. I didn't mean to, but when I was wheeling her to her appointment, I overheard her telling her son that she had been distracted by someone she saw next to her car that when she was pulling into her stall, she got scared because she thought she saw someone sitting in one of the hospital beds in the dark. And instead of breaking, she kept her foot on the wrong pedal. Needless to say, I had a hard time concentrating for the rest of the day, and when my shift was over and I was in the car with my mom, we drove past that storage area. Sure enough, there was broken glass on the ground in the parking space closest to that horrible dark corner. I couldn't bring myself to look at it as we drove by. I still wonder, though, if I had been brave enough, curious enough, would I have seen what that old woman saw? A person who shouldn't be there, someone from beyond death, still sitting in their hospital bed. Everybody got 
spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Overcoming Fear on the Battlefield From Unatoned Like all great military stories that begin with, well, there I was. Let's assume you ask me about the most scared I've ever been while deployed. When people find out I was in the army and had been in combat, often their first question is either, did you kill anyone? Or was it scary to be in combat? Typically, I try to deviate from that first question. Killing or injuring someone is nothing to brag about. Admitting fear, though, I find to be okay and a healthy way of processing things. Though early on after deployment, I would act like I never was scared. But that was a lie. If I'm being completely honest, the fear really didn't hit me when the bullets were flying. Instead, it hit after the fact, when everything was over, when you've got time to think in real time about what just happened. That's where the fear can creep into your head, when you've got time to think. So, there I was, on my first deployment in Afghanistan. We were doing our usual meet-and-greet patrol, winning the hearts and minds of people who hate us and wanted us out of their daily lives. Nothing out of the norm. Roll into a village, disrupt the daily lives of people, get lied to, and go back to our outpost for some R&R. On our way back to the outpost... We were accosted by a young boy, no older than ten. He was screaming something in his native Pashto, which admittedly none of us could understand even a lick of. That's why we always had an interpreter along with us. Our interpreter was able to calm the kid down and find out what the problem was. The boy claimed that he escaped Taliban captivity where he was being abused sexually. We'd always heard this was something the Taliban liked to do, but also thought maybe it was a myth, or a joke to us soldiers to dehumanize our enemies. Immediately, this felt odd, and we were on guard. We weren't in a great ambush spot, as we were in an open field, with at least 2,000 meters between the village we just left and the next village we'd passed through. Though we did have a sniper take a few shots at us in the area previous, we felt like we could be being set up, the Taliban were notorious for using children as a distraction while setting up an ambush. Quickly, our platoon leader made the decision to take this kid back with us and take him to be checked by the battalion surgeon to see if he was telling the truth. The kid claimed he would show us where these guys were staying, describing the compound and how many there were. That odd feeling when we encountered the boy had washed away after getting back to the outpost without further incident. Fast forward a bit, this boy was indeed telling the truth about being sexually abused. Plans were made to conduct a raid on the alleged compound the next night. Being on my first deployment, I thought, cool, we get to go on the offensive. Typically, we'd walk around waiting to be engaged by the enemy. You see, our enemies over there were not easily identifiable unless they were shooting at us. They can drop their AK and blend back into society, acting like a poor farmer within seconds. So the chance to go into a situation knowing who and where the enemies were was something I relished. 
It became concerning when my team leader and I were discussing the circumstances surrounding the mission. He was on his third deployment, once in Iraq and now twice in Afghanistan. He was a seasoned veteran with a lot of experience under his belt. Long story short, he along with some of our other leaders in the platoon had a bad feeling, like we were being set up. Because of the Taliban's nature to use children, this could all be part of an elaborate plan to lure us into their territory. Well, me being a done-nothing private, I wasn't going to argue with them. By the time we were preparing to leave for the mission that night, there was a very somber feeling in the platoon tent, one that I'd never felt. Even after we had a guy wounded, the atmosphere never felt this heavy. That little hint of doubt that our leaders probably did not intend to inject in our heads, but rather was intended to serve as a hey beyond guard, this smells funny type of warning, had spread, and none of us felt good about this raid. We had about an hour walk to our target building, one which felt a lot longer than it actually was. The conflict in my head about the mission weighed heavy, and I spent a lot of energy fighting this fear that was looming. I wish I could say that I was able to push the fear aside and focus on my role that lay ahead, but that wasn't the case. We got within 300 meters of the alleged building where this boy's abusers were staying, and the kid began to start acting really nervous. Our pace slowed to a crawl as the boy was growing more fearful with each step. We took up a defensive position while our platoon sergeant and platoon leader discussed what to do. Of course, I wasn't privy to be in on the conversation, but someone said we might be turning around because of the boy's sudden behavioral change. I would later find out that his behavior had spooked our platoon leader, and the thought that we might be getting set up was a real possibility. That was something that was being considered while the mission was planned, but even this boy's reaction had come as a surprise. Seeing battle-hardened men spooked like this was more than a surprise to me. But I saw both sides of thought here. The boy was obviously traumatized, and it took guts to escape and then return to his place of trauma. Or he could be nervous because he knows he's leading us into a trap. The entire premise of this mission was that they wouldn't be expecting us, hence why we were doing it at night. We had the element of surprise on our side, if this wasn't a setup. We gathered ourselves after leadership decided to proceed with the mission, but it was the lack of confidence in how this was relayed that got to me. My team leader, a battle-tested and proven soldier, had a fear in his voice that I'd never heard before. He reiterated our team's role in the raid, in a way that a eulogy might be read. Myself and my other two roommates took pause for a moment, looking at each other with what-the-hell looks, and we shook our heads nonchalantly, as if to say, well, we're screwed. At this point, if you could read our minds, I think we were all thinking we were walking into death. At least, I was. We had no choice but to suck it up and face our fears. One mistake on my part, or anyone else's part, could end up costing the life or lives of others. I never had time to consider fear and anxiety before a mission. The consideration for things going wrong was always accounted for, so we never really dwelled on that. We trained hard, so that there was no thinking involved when crap hit the fan. All it takes is one ounce of doubt, then fear and anxiety can rationally take control. 
Thankfully, the rest of the mission went mostly as planned, and without incident. Our training kicked in, and I'm alive today to talk about it, as well as everyone else who took part in it. Perhaps if we decided the mission was too big of a risk and turned around, I wouldn't have this lesson on how to deal with fear and anxiety today. It's easy to get caught up in the what-ifs of a situation. Sometimes you just have to suck it up and push through the fear whether you want to or not. Tales from the Break Room is a viewer-submitted podcast featuring allegedly true scary stories that happened on the way to, on the way from, or at work. If you want your story to be narrated on the show, send it to us at eeriecast.com submit. As of April 14th, we're paying three cents per word for stories that are approved and make it onto the show. Submission does not guarantee approval or payment. For a limited time only, PayPal only. Tales from the Break Room is an EerieCast Network original podcast hosted by Darkness Prevails. You can follow him on Twitter at Dark Prevails, and you can hear thousands more stories read by him on our other show, Unexplained Encounters. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and rate Tales from the Break Room on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also enjoy plenty more horror-themed podcasts at EerieCast.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.